Okay, we're um, doing John chapter 6, which starts on page 1069 of the Bibles where you're sitting. It's Jesus feeds the 5,000. So we're doing John chapter 6, 1 to 15, and then we're doing 25 to 35, and then we're doing verse 51. So it's page 1069. Um, right, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you were looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which is the, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the work, works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on give us this bread. Jesus declared, 
I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. This is the word of the Lord. So, Lord, as we look at this passage now, Lord, we take hold of your promise. The promise that you made that to anyone who is hungry, to anyone who is thirsty, you would come and satisfy. So, Lord, we take hold of that promise now as we look at this great story of what you did. And so open our hearts so that we would know who you are and we would understand what it means to have life in your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here's the scene. This is the only miracle that Jesus does that all four of the gospel writers mention in their biographies of his life. This is the only one. And Jesus has, has, has got in a boat and he's gone from the western side of the Sea of Galilee. If you don't know anything about the Sea of Galilee, it's this inland sea in the middle of Israel or the top half of Israel, shall we say. And he gets in a boat and he goes from the western side because that's where Cana is, where he was before. And he goes over to the eastern side. And, and just imagine this scene, because as you, you pick up, he's got in this fishing boat with his disciples. And then what follows across this inland sea is not just one boat, it's not just two boats, it's not just three boats. It must have been hundreds and hundreds of boats, just by the very maths. And you could just imagine this fleet of fishing boats that are following Jesus across to the other side. And they're following because they've seen the signs. If you like, these miracles that, that Jesus does as he goes around. We heard about one of those signs last week of the healing of the official's son in Cana. In between, he's done another healing. He's healed a man who's had disabilities for 38 years at the pool at Bethesda in Jerusalem. And so these crowds are hungry. They're hungry and they're thirsty, not because of who Jesus is, but they're hungry and thirsty to see another sign. They've had their appetites whetted and they want more and more of Jesus doing these signs. And Jesus knows this because not only can he see the signs and do the signs. He can read the signs as well in people's lives. And so he gets out of the boat and he starts to climb this hill. It wasn't like a mountain, but it wasn't just something that was shallow as well. And he must go quite far up just by the pure numbers involved. And he sits down and he begins to talk to his disciples. What he talks about, we, we don't know. 
But at some stage, he gets kind of distracted from sitting around in his, with his fellow group. And he looks up. And he sees this great sight of people coming towards him. Of course, because he's Jesus, he knows there's at least 5,001 of them, as we'll see. And of course, he's made the same journey. He's made the same journey across that lake. And he knows that those people may well be hungry for a sign, but what he knows as well is that they're also... He is the sign of their stomachs rumbling as well. And so he says to one of his closest followers, Philip, he says to him, well, listen, Philip, how are we going to find enough bread for these people to eat? And obviously, if if we're following the story, we can see that Philip has no intention whatsoever that that particular menu, that particular meal is going to be on the menu, does he? How are we going to find even enough for a bite for all these people to eat? And so then Andrew, another one of Jesus' closest followers, he kind of interrupts, doesn't he? And he says, well, there's this small boy who's got his packed lunch here. Of five barley loaves and, and, and two fish. And he says to Jesus, well, here you go. Just do with it what you want. But he's got no... He's got no inclination whatsoever also to think that that particular meal is on the menu either. You could tell that by his reaction as well. Here's what you might not know about five barley loaves. It was a poor person's food. This is what a barley loaf looked like. That was it. That was the size, roughly. It was pretty flat. It was just a poor person's bread. And of course, maybe some of them, as Jesus gets them all to sit down, some of them may begin to realize something. That actually there was a story in the Old Testament with the great prophet Elisha. When what he did was that he was in Perhaps a similar situation, not of the great size. And you can read about it in 2 Kings 4 if you want to afterwards. And he's got about a hundred people. And all he's got to feed them with is is 20 of these barley loaves. And he does a, a similar thing and his servant, Elisha's servant, thinks that he's absolutely crazy to think that even 20 of these can feed a hundred people. Never mind Just five, feeding what was at least 15,000 people there. And he gets them to sit down. And then what he does is he, he, he takes the bread. He gives thanks to God for it. And he starts to, to distribute it out. And of course, some of them, take a bit more than they need, don't they? You can imagine it, couldn't you? If you were one of the first to gather and you see there's only five loaves and you're a bit hungry, maybe their eyes, for some of them, got a bit bigger than their bellies. Because that's what happens, isn't it? Because they all have enough for their need. And he does the same with the fish. 
And then you start to notice something on the ground. All of a sudden you notice that there's loads of food on the ground. Because people have had enough, they feel well and truly well fed. And so Jesus gets the disciples to go and to pick up. How big the baskets were, we don't know. But we know there were 12 basketfuls of leftovers. Such a picture of the abundance and the generosity of God. And of course, the crowds that are watching suddenly start to click a bit more about what Jesus has done. Because this is now the fourth sign that he's done. And they suddenly start to think about who he could be and who they want him to be. In other words, God on their terms. And so they start to, if you like, start to get these crazy suggestions that they could make Jesus a bit of a puppet king because he can do all of these miracles so he'll be able to defeat the Romans and they'll be able to live in peace. But Jesus can not only do the signs, he can read the signs as well. And he can see what's going on in their lives and so he just departs further up that hill to be by himself. And so, I have two questions from this story that I've got to think about. And I think you have to think about them too. You see, because this is one of seven signs that Jesus does. As we heard so helpfully from Graham last week, John structures his gospel in part around these seven signs. We know they weren't the only miraculous signs that he did. Because at the end of his gospel, if you've looked at that term card, I've put the reason why John wrote this particular biography of Jesus' life. If you want to know, this is the reason why. Because Jesus did many other miraculous signs in front of his followers. And these signs were given that you and I might believe. If you like, in other words, we might examine them, we might pull them apart and rip them apart and come to an understanding and have faith and trust that Jesus is the Messiah, the special one, the Son of God. And that by believing we may have life in his name. And so these signs, therefore, are hugely important. You know, earlier in November, last year, I went to a a continuous ministry development day. That's a bit like what you'd call a professional development day in in the business world. And I went over to Canterbury Diocese, and I was being led by one of the leading New Testament scholars of the past 50 years, and he said something really helpful, or what I found really helpful about these signs, and I share it with you this morning in the hope that you'll find it helpful as well. And he said this, he said, these, it's not so much that these signs are significant, but that they are sign-ificant. And by that, what he meant is this, that what happens with most of these signs is that as we heard this morning, there then follows this lengthy discourse that we have read some of this morning. And the idea behind the lengthy discourse that follows is it's meant to help us. It's meant to shed light on the miracle of who Jesus is. So my first question is, 
Why does this sign, why does this sign of, of, of Jesus feeding the 15,000 or whatever it was, why does this sign help us to know that he's the son of God? Why? Because all the best questions begin with why, don't they? When you were a child and you used to annoy your parents when they said to do something and you kept saying why? Or when you're a parent now and you ask your kids to do something and they keep saying why and it really irritates you. Or if you're a, a grandparent, you're so relieved now, aren't you? Because when your blessed cherub says why, you can give them back to your parents. Why? And of course, the reason is because Jesus can do what only God could do. Because we all know the story that is laced throughout this passage, don't we? We all know the story that just is echoing out over and over again as Jesus does this story. We see it in verse 4 if you want to see it just for a start. Because John writes this throwaway line. And the time of Passover was near. Little note here. If you ever want to understand John's gospel, note this. He never writes throwaway lines. It's not just something that's just thrown into the story. There's a purpose behind it. Because the great story that echoes all the way through this particular passage is the great story of the Exodus. When God rescued the people of Israel, the whole of the nation from slavery in Egypt, and he brought them through the wilderness into the promised land in Canaan. And when do the people of God remember the Exodus story? They remember it at Passover. And it's now that Jesus does this miracle at during Passover. And of course, one of the greatest signs that God did during that journey was how he fed them daily in the desert by feeding them literally bread from heaven. And now, what does Jesus do? At that same time of year when they're just starting to get thinking once more about Passover time, Jesus reenacts one of the most famous events in Israel's history and does it with his own demonstration by providing bread for more than 5,000 to eat. That's why. Because Jesus is doing what only God can do. But this is the second question. And for me, I think the second question is perhaps more important. What is the life in his name that John talks about? What is the life in his name that, if you like, is to be seen in our lives? What is he meaning? What does the feeding of the 5,000 mean for us today? And once again, this is once more where the, the discourse that follows afterwards helps us. You know, what does life in his name mean, this phrase that John uses? Well, if you turn with me just over a few pages to John chapter 17 and verse 3. You see, this life in his name is in part eternal life. That's what it is in part, eternal life. And this is how, how Jesus defines eternal life. 
in John chapter 17 and verse 3, that they know you. That they know. Not just, oh, I just know that. That they know. In other words, that they have been changed. That they understand the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus said it's all about knowing. It's all about knowing this life. It's all about knowing what exactly he has done for you. He has done for me. As Jesus would describe it in this particular story in verse 51 when he said that he came as the living bread from heaven and how he lived on this earth and how he died by giving his life so that we could know this wonderful life in his name that he promised. You see, life in his name comes by being changed by the cross. And Jesus says in verse 51, doesn't he, whoever, whoever, it therefore places the invitation within all time and space since he ever mentioned it. It cannot be restricted. But it's not just about, well, it's not just about a ticket to heaven, is it? Because eternal life doesn't begin when we die. As the great hymn writer William Williams reminds us, eternal life doesn't begin after we're dead. He says, feed me now and evermore. You see, eternal life begins before the grave now when we have been changed by the cross's redemptive power in our lives and when we know this. And so in that sense, what this discourse that follows points out to us is this. That life in his name also has something to do with our everyday lives now. Because what did this stuff represent? What did bread represent? Even this poor person's bread, what did it represent in Jesus' day? Well, quite simply, it was this. It was the staple food of the day. Which meant this. If you didn't have this, you were dead. It was essential for everyday living. This is what Jesus' teaching, Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 represented in terms of what it meant to live life in his name. It meant that you would depend upon him in those everyday moments of your life. That he wasn't just some fix when you were in crisis in your life, but that he was someone that we relied upon for everything. Just like the people of God relied upon him in the wilderness and they relied upon the bread, just like those 5,000 and plus gathered relied upon the bread. And you know, that only happens when we kind of get two choices in this story. We can kind of act like the crowds or we can be a bit more like Philip and Andrew. You see, here's how the actions of the crowd plays out. They want God on their terms. 
They demand to be fed until they want no more. You see, Jesus has promised to be the bread of life, the sign of life in his name. It's not about in our everyday lives going to school or going to work each day, feeling as if we've been half fed by Jesus. It's not about suffering from some sort of malnutrition at home. Oh, with our friends because he gets squeezed or, or sucked out. It's not about lacking energy in our conversations with Jesus because we're eating some sort of junk food rather than feeding on him. It's not about being passive and lethargic in our lives when, when our lives go a bit crazy or we're not quite sure what's going on because that will happen in our lives. And then we suddenly get tempted to eat a different type of meal that the world dangles at us. If we behave like what the crowd's kind of reaction is here, then Jesus will never satisfy. Because we eat, as in verse 27, as Jesus would say here, do not eat the food that spoils. But there's this wonderful promise. There's this wonderful promise that Jesus makes when he says, I'm the bread of life. I can satisfy where no one else can satisfy. I can meet those longings that nobody else can meet. I can scratch those itches that nobody else can scratch. And what's more, you won't want to scratch them anymore. Because it's the bread of life. And he promises to do that to each one in our lives. And what he asks each one of us to do is just as in verse 34 says, Lord, give us your bread always. Lord, as I get up this morning, it's a Monday morning and I don't know what's going to happen. Lord, give me your bread always. Or as I get up on Tuesday morning and lo and behold, it stopped raining and there's no wind and there's a bit of sunshine. And we pray, Lord, give me your bread always. So that when we're going to school or when we're going to work, we're relying upon Jesus as the essential food we need to eat every day. Or when we're at home or with our, out with our friends, Jesus is the main meal that has nourished us through those occasions, or when we're exhausted by the stresses of this life or that what work puts on us, Jesus is the essential food that is feeding us through that time or in the conversations that we have. Jesus is the food that we can taste on our lips and on our tongues. Or when we're, when we're not sure what's going on in our lives or when we're uncertain of what's going on in our lives because it will happen in our lives, we kind of take the attitude of Andrew. And we just place it at Jesus and we not know what he's going to do with it, but we have an expectation that he is going to do something about it. Because Jesus is the bread of life who comes and feeds every hunger, who comes and satisfies every thirst. And there's this great promise, this great promise that, that, that I want for my life, never mind what you want for your life. But I think you'd want it too. That that Jesus says that when you pray, Lord, just give me this bread always. 
There's this wonderful thing about our lives, that our lives at school or at work are are so richly fed, that our relationships at home with the people that we love or our friends that we think are great are just so full of life or vitality or our conversations about Jesus, even when they're just short and quicker like a rich gourmet meal or even in the uncertainties of what's going on in our lives, it's the hope of Jesus that sustains us. And when we know Life in this way. When we've been changed by the cross of Christ, we believe that Jesus is the one who can be totally dependent. We can totally depend on. Because he'll satisfy all those needs. He'll scratch all those itches. He'll fulfill every longing. He'll meet every craving. He'll abound over every desire. And I hope you know Jesus in that way. Because there is no one. Even when you get tempted to do the things that you just don't want to do in your life, even when you get tempted even to wreck your life, you will find that still, even then, Jesus can come and meet your every need. And the reason I know is because I was there. And there'll be this sign at the end. There'll be this sign at the end for all to see that your life will be such this wonderful picture of 12 basketfuls of leftover that just speak to everyone all around of the generosity and the abundance of God in your life. Let us pray. Why don't we stand together as we pray? Maybe why don't we just reach out to God in an attitude that says, maybe reaching out our hands to him and just say, Lord, give us this bread always. Maybe some of us want to take God at his word this morning. And say, God, I just give you everything that I'm doing in my life. And just come as the bread of life into my life. I just give you it all and I just leave it with you. Knowing that you will do something with it. Maybe for some of us, we just want that picture of the 12 basketfuls left over. That we just want our life to be this life of abundance. This life of provision. And Jesus says, it's about just saying, Lord, give me this bread daily. Lord, give me this bread to rely upon in my life. 
So as Jesus is here by his spirit. So Lord would you come and meet our needs. And would you change us to be the people that you want us to be. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.